and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Brett Knackman from the Notably Disney podcast to talk about his love of Disney, his Disney fandom, the Notably Disney podcast, and also his very important research dealing with people on the autism spectrum and how Disney impacts those consumers and those individuals. And also we discuss how different classroom techniques and learning techniques can be used to engage with people on the spectrum. This was a very, very fun and very enlightening conversation for me. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you and please come along with us on our adventure. All right, everybody, welcome back. Um, in this class, we have Dr. Brett Knackman returning. Um, he made his debut in our Disney musicals panel, and now he is here to do his one-on-one -on -one interview. Um, so he's here because a lot of his, his fandom with Disney um, revolves around music. He hosts notably Disney, a podcast about Disney music, um, where he does some fantastic things. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about um, his research and his his professional role. At, he's an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas right now. And so we'll get into that as well. Um, but Brett, I want to welcome you to the show and welcome you to the class. And if you could give us um, kind of a summary of where your Disney fandom started um, and then take us up to today and um, the things you're doing with your fandom now. Yeah, thanks for having me again on. Uh, Cody, appreciate it. Uh, I feel like we need to buckle our seatbelts for a, a journey of 30 <laughs> years of Disney fandom more or less, but um, I'll, I'll save everybody the, the safety spiel. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was lucky enough to be within six hours of driving distance to Disneyland. Um, didn't go for the first time until uh, I was four and a half. Um, so that would have been, it was actually the closing season of the Main Street Electrical Parade back in 96. Um, but my Disney uh, fandom, I think, emerged much earlier than that, um, seeing movies like Pocahontas and Toy Story in the theaters. Um, and as I referenced on the, the panel episode, having so many of those movies on VHS, like so many folks who grew up around that period or who are parents around that period or or in their college dorm rooms with their VCRs, the, just the notion of, of being able to consume uh, that type of media at, at your own pace, however frequently you wanted to. I mean, I think so many... Um, people know, particularly in this age of streaming, how wonderful it is mm -hmm. to have access to the entertainment you want when you want it. And, you know, I think uh, kids today maybe take it for granted in terms of, oh, I have everything at my fingertips. Well, what remember the days when you actually had to rewind a tape. But um, for me, uh, it was those early memories of consuming the, the films that I just gravitated toward. I think certainly uh, the music stuck out to me at the time, Alan Menken's tune, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's tunes and many others, but also I think just the 
the imagery, the storytelling, the characters, you know, these tenets that Disney is known for. It's, you know, these, these main pillars, which often revolve around having great storytelling and, and characters and, and music often is interwoven within that. So I think uh, my story probably doesn't necessarily differ too much from um, other kids who grow up on Disney, where you you consume the entertainment from your household and um, and often you want an extension of that. So, you know, for some, it's, I think, uh, video games and I played the computer games, of course. Um, and I didn't have a video game console until older. So computer was my way of consuming the like. I don't know if folks remember from the mid nineties, but like the Disney animated storybooks where you would click mm -hmm. on the characters. And um, I remember those being really fun, but going to Disneyland, I think for the first time at four was an, a different mechanism for me to really engage in the Disney world. And, um, and that would lead down the line to taking trips to Walt Disney world. Um, not as frequently because of the distance and, and other reasons, but um, during my, unquote childhood although i think we're all children at heart if we love disney and truly embrace that that mentality i mean i went to disney world probably i don't know seven times um as i was a kid and disneyland more than a dozen mm -hmm. uh, so it was very much embedded in terms of my childhood going to one of the disney parks usually um each year and really privileged uh, because of that and um and when I say I was a, a Disney kid, it, I think it extended to more than just going to the parks and watching the movies. My room decorated with Disney posters and artwork, all the toys, um, always that those would be priorities uh, for, for my birthday or other occasions. Um, I would draw maps, my own like little maps of dis like different uh, areas of Disney parks or coming mm -hmm. up with my own versions of disney parks and um and, and we'll talk about this later because i know you wanted to we want to talk a little bit more about my research on autism but i think a lot of my investment in disney i think stems from a characteristic that i think is common among a lot of people who are in the autism community which is having your unquote hyper interests or passions that you are at times obsessive about um not necessarily in a negative way but in a way that it really drives you and i think for me my love of uh, storytelling and creativity translated to writing stories that involved Disney characters and drawing maps and finding other uh, vehicles for um, extending that that passion. So it it really much impacted all all different parts of of my childhood and in all the best possible ways. I think um, my love for writing and initially using Disney as a as a way to communicate ideas. I mean, my, my undergrad is in journalism and my doctorate is in educational leadership and, and research. So writing, uh, which really stemmed from those early days, writing my little Disney stories would translate to being a uh, quote unquote academic researcher. Um, and then the creativity that I feel like that I was able to um, foster during that period has had ripple effects in terms of the podcast that I host and the interviewing skills that I gained as a young journalist ultimately uh, translate to today as well. So yeah, Disney was threaded across all different parts of my childhood and yeah, happy to talk um, more about it, but it's it's really cool to to see, especially as an adult, as someone who's, you know, 
we're so many years now removed from when the internet launched and when online message boards started and all of that. But you realized in those early days in the early 2000s how you're, you're not an anomaly. You're not alone. Mm-hmm. There are other people out there who hold the same passions as you. I always felt like you know, an anomaly in a sense because I had such a fixed interest and and not just a, a passion but for the products, but also the history and, and a real deep appreciation for what the company encompasses and people behind it and realizing, you know what, there are a lot of other folks out there. And I think that's what the past, you know, 15, 20 years um, through podcasting, through websites, through um, YouTube channels and so much more have afforded. And I think that's been a huge, um, it's been a huge positive um, to to find that community and ultimately uh, share your passion and share your knowledge and perspective with others. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I I think um on that on that note it is so uh when I started teaching this class in 2018, it is so refreshing and really eye-opening to see how many people are such big fans of Disney. And it, like you said, you, you realize you're, you're not an anomaly. Um, there is, I, I think everybody knows it's, it's the largest entertainment brand in the world, but, you know, I think a lot of people also would attribute that to be because they own so much, but there is such a like visceral experience and attachment people have to the Walt Disney Company, um, case in point, a lot of people, you know, recently we, back in November, we had a change of CEO. The old CEO is now the new CEO again. And and I think for a lot of companies, you, you people don't know who the CEO is. They don't know who the, the upper management of those companies are. But at a company like Walt Disney, because of the way it was founded and because I think Walt Disney himself put himself out there so much and curated, created and curated this vision of what people refer to as Uncle Walt, um, I think that created this really, this attachment to not just the content and the products, but to the people who are with that company as well. And I think one of the major takeaways from the last 18, 19 months, and especially these these last few months, now that we're seeing more reporting come out about this, um, I think one of the major takeaways is that um, one of the things that sets Disney apart, and I think people knew this, but now there's more evidence, is that attachment people have. And, And when you are in a position of leadership within the Walt Disney Company, the expectations for how you engage with people, I think is vastly different than the expectations or how you engage with people, you know, in another company in a leadership role. Um, I think one thing that, that, that I wrote, I jotted down while you were talking, I, I jotted down a couple things. Um, you're, you, you drawing, um, maps and coming up with plans for additional Disney attractions and parks. And, and we'll get to that later. But um, one thing that caught my attention early on was 
when you were talking about, you know, watching VHSs of Disney films over and over again, now that we have streaming and everything is so readily, readily available, do you think that, how do you think that impacts the repeat consumption somebody has of content? Because you, you definitely can't like now, if you watch Aladdin and you want to rewatch it, just hit restart, just hit restart, just hit restart. You could do that. And you see that with Nielsen charts. I mean, with the original programming, um, Disney might have one program in the top 10 or two programs in the top 15 or top 20 usually, but with the movies, the animated movies, I mean, Disney will usually, it's not unlikely for them to have six or seven in the top 15 of those streaming charts. Um, so you see that, but do you think that now having so much content at your fingertips, does it help people consume things over and over again? Or could it possibly like now you're consuming A, B, C, and D instead of A, five times in a row, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think any parent of a young child will probably say their kid has a favorite film or TV series that they'll watch endlessly. I think that's why we see like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and Bluey and some of those other shows consistently up there, not just because of volume of content and it's often based on like number of minutes consumed, but because you have those, those standards, those staples in so many households um, just playing constantly. I think what streaming um, contributed to is a less shared experience among folks in terms of like, think about, you know, even big releases these days, there's so much content that mm -hmm. consequently, what are the odds, unless it's like a, you know, an avatar or, you know, in traditional movie theaters or um, even like an Obi-Wan Kenobi in an event series, what are the odds that you're going to find a bunch of other people mm -hmm. um, in non-Disney spaces engaging in the same content and, and being able to have uh, conversations about it? I think it's I think it's much more unlikely. So I, I think it the the notion of choice is obviously extremely favorable and and so much more affordable. Like you know we think about the days of you know, Blockbuster and Hollywood video, and you'd be paying four or five dollars to rent something for a few days. And mind you, that was in, you know, 90s prices versus today for a month and what you can get at your fingertips. It totally uh, re-envisioned what it's like to be able to consume media, not only based on frequency, but variety and um, and be able to to really dig deeper, right? Like if I wanted to to like make sense of a, a scene from a favorite animated film toy story i have to constantly rewind mm -hmm. or but but now it's like okay that takes me two seconds yeah. so it's it's fascinating to think about and and what that also means in terms of like i have no background in the hard sciences but from just a you know brain like from the brain and how we're just consuming that and, and what that means i think it's really fascinating because media is is just transforming so rapidly and and how much are we able to really process in that yeah yeah and that's that's actually that's one of the the things i enjoy talking about most 
in all of my classes is like this idea of entertainment is changing constantly. And what do companies need to do to keep up? How do consumers keep up with technology? And I mean, there's just, there's so much out there now that you, there, there's a lot of good content that does get lost, I think. Um, because, you know, there's people can't sit down and they don't, a lot of people don't have the freedom or the, excuse me, the privilege of being able to watch things over and over and over again and, and you know, watch things throughout the day. And um, so one getting on to your, your research and, and um, what you want to do, you mentioned, or what you do professionally, you mentioned that the Disney movies and music um, contributed to you, you started writing stories, you started writing your own stories and, and the, the creativity that you were able to develop through doing that. And then also like how that led to the podcast, but how it also led to you becoming more and more interested in understanding and therefore understanding different phenomena and, and, and therefore researching. Um, you mentioned when we first, when, when we were communicating um, that you did, was it an undergrad thesis, an honors thesis on Disney? What, talk to us a little bit about that first, and then we'll, then we'll get into what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my undergrad was in journalism and mass communication. And right when I, like about a year into my community college experience, um, I had connected with someone who, um, a family friend who was, uh, who's still a friend of mine, who uh, was a co-host of a, a podcast uh, associated with an entertainment website that is no longer around, but um, it, it led to thinking about, well, I love entertainment. I love pop culture. Is there an opportunity for something Disney related um, on there? And so I started writing a, I believe that it was a weekly column, um, okay. a weekly Disney themed column. And I would write articles that were mostly opinion based, but also sometimes news summarizing what was happening. So it was kind of handling that in concert with my uh, more serious uh, journalism that I was uh, engaging on in campus. And the reason why I'm mentioning this prior to my thesis is what it was really, why it was very effective was that it enabled me to to share my Disney knowledge and mm -hmm. and interests on a, on a bigger scale. So this was about 2010. Um, so we're seeing a lot around that time in terms of blogs, but this was through a, an entertainment news site. And um, I started guesting on on po on podcasts associated with the website um, as well. And it was, that was kind of my first taste of like, oh yeah, like other people share the same interests as me. Mm -hmm. And I was never really getting um, much feedback because again, I'm writing, I'm writing, putting things out there, seeing how folks respond. Occasionally there would be comments or, or through Twitter or other means I'd get some feedback. But what I realized was that, you know, I really enjoyed doing this. And when the, when the website um, came to a close, I ended up um, shifting to a, another entertainment website uh, called Geeks of Doom. And I wrote for them for five years and I loved it. I was doing very much what I had been a lot of just opinion-based stuff. But what I was thinking about during this time when I was kind of coming into my own as a, as a, a writer in the academic sense and the journalistic sense, I should say, that you know, 
I want to be able to really explore um, Disney history a little bit more intensively. And I was with an honors college um, at the time. And the notion is that you'd write a thesis. And um, clearly for me, I'm like, okay, this is an opportunity to focus on one of my passions. So I always have had such a uh, investment in Epcot. And even though it didn't necessarily uphold the original vision that Walt had had, um, ultimately I, I view it as like the ultimate, the, the park that is as like an ultimate world's fair. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I wrote a thesis about Epcot's uh, efficacy and, and at times lack thereof in terms of bridging culture and technology in a theme park context. And uh, I mean, this is by no means my my finest work, I'm still very much a budding writer, but what was awesome about it is it gave me a chance to, to write a, a really thorough literature review and, and learn all about Epcot. I bought lots of books. I was starting to analyze uh, like more uh, more uh, academic articles mm -hmm. um, more intensively. But what was really cool about the opportunity in writing an honors thesis is that if you as a student wanted, um, when you stage your defense, your presentation of your uh, of your paper, you could actually bring in uh, the notion of an external examiner. So okay. someone who works in the field related to your area of interest. And uh, and so I reached out uh, to Jeff Curdy, who's a Disney okay. author, um, and he's written a ton of books. He worked for Disney for a long time officially, and then as a consultant and in other capacities. And uh, and Jeff uh, took me up on the, on the offer to be an external examiner, came to Phoenix, spent the day with me. He was giving feedback at the defense presentation. He gave a little presentation about his uh, uh, understandings of Walt Disney, and it was a great speech. But for me, that was really awesome because yeah. it allowed me to connect with someone whose work I appreciated and really interesting individual nonetheless. Um, and it was that mechanism for me to explore Disney in a bit more of an academic sense, even though it yeah. was for an honors thesis and, you know, it, you can find it online, but um, it was, it was an excuse to study something I loved kind of like what I know what, what we were talking about in terms of why we engage in the work we do. You've, you folded a lot into your career more formally than me. For me, it's more of just a, uh, an outlet outside of um, my formal role, but uh, it's a it's a great opportunity when you when you have that space. So why not take advantage of it? And um, and then that led me down other avenues that yeah. I'm sure we'll we'll explore further. You um, I I I should have had you send me that before because I'm sure there's like fifty questions off of that. And it, it, it one thing that um, as I've told people who watch this who listen to this. Whenever I talk to people, it's always like I, I learn in either preparing for it or talking. I learn I like go off on this whole other path. And and so I'm not sure that makes for like a great listening experience all the time. Um, but it, it's maybe it's more cathartic for me. I'm not sure. But uh, like. A few uh, a few years ago, we I had somebody join the class Um and he joined the class to talk about um, a, a ride he built that was based off of the, the Matterhorn. It was themed after the Matterhorn. But in preparing for that, I learned he told me that he did an honors thesis on um, essentially whether 
Epcot would have worked as a living city uh, as it was originally planned. Uh, and so it, that might be interesting for you to to contact. His name's Sean La Rochelle. I'll I'll put you two in contact at some point. You two can um, discuss different things. He's he's now I believe he is at um, he's is doing his master's degree and maybe architecture because that's his his big interest. Um, but that's extremely interesting to uh, yes, and to get that experience of. Here's something that um, you really, really enjoy. Um, and so you're able to kind of dive into this, excuse me, for these these professional reasons and these academic reasons. Um, and so I think like for, for an academic researcher, um, the people who really enjoy it, they they really enjoy the topics that they're writing about. Um, I really enjoy writing and researching and talking about group behavior and how that influences people's perceptions of others and behaviors toward others. And, and yes, within that, like I talk about Disney and I talk about a whole bunch of other consumer um, settings. Um, your research, can you you talk to us about um, your research making the decision to uh, pursue your doctorate um, and then ending up at right now, the University of Arkansas doing the research that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So when I was an undergrad, I, as I said, I was pursuing a bachelor's in journalism, mass communication, obtained that degree. I was, I, I enjoyed what I did at, in terms of writing stories and learning about people. A lot of my work was related to education what I realized was it wasn't quite the outlet um, in terms of channeling some of those skills. And later on in my undergrad, I realized, you know what, I want to be able to translate these qualities, different setting. I realized that I could get a, a doctorate in education and ultimately um, building on the skills that I had attained in terms of uh, working in academia. I served various leadership roles and, and different appointments and in concert with uh writing stories about education, I realized, okay, so I can do education research and I could also try to work to make our our higher ed, uh, my focus is higher education, post-secondary education, um, more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so I followed uh, the route of like, okay, I'm going to get my doctorate, um, which was quite a leap um, and ultimately took me across the country, went to Wisconsin, um, got okay. my PhD there. And, um, and during that time, I did a lot of work on community college students. I'm a product of a community college system, and my alma mater is known for its mascot, which is the artichoke. Okay. Uh, it's one of the few uh, with a plant as the mascot. We're very proud of our fighting artichokes. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I a lot of my work was on how to support uh, community college transfer students okay. and uh, and their trajectories, as well as like soon after I started my graduate school journey, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to produce the best research if I fully immerse all of my interests and, and experiences. And so then I uh, paired that with uh, my experience as someone who's autistic in the autism community. And and I, this was about seven, eight years ago, and there wasn't a whole lot of research on that in higher education and mm -hmm. certainly not in the community college setting. So I'm 
kind of the the bells go off like oh my gosh like i can i can be a a person in this movement to elevate awareness of of these folks experiences and higher ed broadly but more importantly community colleges and um and mind you none of this has to do uh with disney but what was really important during this period is that it led me to i think really embrace all of who i am in my work and i think in concert with that and mention the podcast shortly uh, as my work became uh, more intensive in, in terms of the research I was doing, it's realizing I need additional outlets yeah. uh, to be able to foster um, that passion. And so not just the passion related to my research, but also Disney. And I started my podcast um, in the um, probably my fourth year in, in grad school. So uh, yeah, it uh, my, my work, my research primarily is on community college students and leadership and issues related to those systems um, and, and making them more equitable and better understanding um, uh, experiences that are often not surfacing. And then in conjunction with that, uh, most of my work uh, connects to autism and disability in higher education. Um, and that's a, those are both very, very strong passions of mine. And particularly the autism pieces is, is now um, how a lot of people know me professionally and how mm -hmm. I've been able to um, um, be elevated in these spaces um, to be, to play a really important part in those conversations in, in the college level, at least. So that's yeah. kind of a, a quick summary. Yeah. Well, and it, that's, that's, I mean, that's a great summary because, and it is, it's one of those things that, as I said, you, you become so passionate about what you research. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's great for you to use your training, your ability to help in that space um, and to be able to help others in, in that space. Um, and so I commend you for that, that, you know, you, you applied your training, your abilities, your, your um, like your drive for this, your passion for this. Um, to help other people. So, so very, very well done. Um, and, and, and thanks for continually adding, you know, great, great literature, uh, great knowledge to the literature base and everything. I think um, on the topic of the spectrum, I told you before we started recording um, that I had somebody um Big Fat Panda, John Sakari, who told me when he first started making video blogs or vlogs in the parks, and he would he would record, um, do ride of ride along videos. So he would like record the ride, but the queue and all these things. And he started getting these letters and these messages from parents who said that really helped either them or or somebody they're with or their children who may be on the spectrum that that may have been. Um, nervous about going on certain attractions, but watching videos like that kind of helped uh, these individuals help or know what to expect. And so it, it, the question I have for you is, in your experience, how does themed entertainment or music or theme parks, how does that impact and ultimately kind of what are the positive impacts, but also possibly some of the, the negative impacts on someone who is on the spectrum? 
Yeah, that's a really thoughtful and I think big question to think about. Uh, well, because, yeah, and because it's so, because it's so diverse as well. Like, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. No individual, you know, individuals are they are very individual. They're not similar in many ways that experience this. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, by no means is my response a, a critique. I think it's a it's a great question for me to continually think about as well. Um, I think what I've my understandings of people in the autism community and, and Disney, even though I haven't studied it, I can only speak on you know my lived experience and, and things I've read is that I think why so many folks in, in the autism community and, and other minoritized communities, to be sure, gravitate toward Disney um, is the sense of comfort and safety that it affords um, in terms of the being involved in the parks and and you're generally in spaces that are welcoming, that are respectful, although I think increasingly we've seen some brawls and unfortunate yeah. things un unfold in the parks, but ultimately the parks often represent this image of, of like I said, comfort and safety. It's a, a space to channel your passions, to, to uh, step into the shoes of a favorite character, go on these thrilling experiences, the sense of immersiveness. And I, and I, and I know a lot of people in the autism community often try to find those places to escape, to escape the realities of the real world, which are often not necessarily designed and structured or valuing their perspectives, their insights, their different ways of navigating um, the world, uh, their processing. Um, and not to say that Disney always represents that or or is that for, for everyone, but um, you know, there was a great documentary that was based on a book years ago called Life Animated that focuses on a father's engagement with his son through Disney movies. And um, and actually I saw him present at a conference years ago and it was very well done. But um, these spaces afford, these Disney spaces afford that sense of uh, ch channeling your interests in, in distinct ways. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about music. So music is an outlet for so many creative folks and, and certainly music can also be cathartic. Um, music can be uh, a way to experiment with, um, you know, playing certain chords or, or, or coming up with distinct lyrics. Um, Disney envelops all of that and, and more. And, and also I think other um, distinct brands have that same effect. Um, I can imagine, uh, you know, Harry Potter and, and comics and, and so much more. It's the, like we talked about at the beginning, it's the notion of characters and storytelling, and sometimes paired with music. I think it's a really powerful mix. That's why so many people, I think, love to read. It's that notion of escapism and, and Disney, because it engages with you on so many different levels, can be that almost uh, umbrella for, for everything. Um, for me, it was, and it still is in many ways, and for so many other folks in, in the autism community, it provides that and more. And I think increasingly Disney is more attentive of and uh, elevating those perspectives. Pixar has had a couple of shorts on Disney Plus that feature mm -hmm. um, autistic characters. And and I think we're, we've seen that in little pieces here and there. And I think that representation is important on on so many fronts, not just folks in the autism community, but it's, it's really fascinating to think about um, in terms of what that will look like over time as there's increasing not only awareness, but as I argue a lot in my work, 
it's not just learning about something, it's also accepting and finding yeah. um, inclusive means of welcoming everybody's perspectives and, and abilities too. Yeah. Um, well, and I actually, I had written down um, Float as one um, of the, the Disney Plus projects. And, and with the question that, um, how important is inclusion we are seeing the company and its content we're seeing <clears throat> various entertainment companies do this but um specific to disney we're seeing more inclusion um across many different areas um inclusion as far as any minor not any but a lot of minoritized groups and um people have talked about the importance of of seeing someone like them that that resembles themselves or acts like themselves on on screen and and knowing that that now is someone that they you know can look to and, and they are represented um what do you think more on the importance is of inclusion in this context or in in different content that the company puts out yeah that's also a great question i think we all continue to to reconcile because I think we see with uh, big media companies, I think they have the power to make the biggest impact that's positive, but also inaction can create such discord mm -hmm. and um, and a lack of allegiance. And I think we saw that really um, manifest last year at this time in terms of um, kind of the Florida politics and, and Bob Chapek's um, initial lack of leadership and in, in, uh, uh, really uh, embracing the many folks in the LGBTQ plus community who are, are a big part of both the Disney cast member base, but also um, fandom. Mm -hmm. So I think the representation in terms of the content is absolutely pivotal, but it also has to be echoed by the structures and practices by the media companies that have such characters. So yeah. my sense is Disney as a whole is making great strides um, over these, particularly in the past five to 10 years as it pertains to thinking about, um, you know, women of color in, in, in the animated films, right? We have, you know, Encanto and Ryan the Last Dragon and, and others. Like, I think that is so important in terms of for little girls and, 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 people of color to see themselves as those leads, as those heroes, as those uh, iconic figures that will be alongside Belle and Ariel. Um, it translates to, you know, uh, Marvel uh, increasingly having a, a more diverse uh, leading cast in terms of gender and race and uh, sexuality and, and ability and, and the list goes on. It's, it's so vital. Um, I mean, it's kind of preaching to the choir, I think, so, much, so many of us realize that, but we have to think of what type of impact that particularly that has on children who are in many ways very open-minded and also super impressionable. So if they're not exposed to, to content that that may contribute to them harboring more ignorance or more hatred or unfamiliarity with people and experiences that are unlike them. So I think Disney has an extremely vital role in that. And um, and there's a number of different corporate efforts um, that are making strides and 
kind of prior prioritizing that. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, they don't mess up at times or don't fully embrace opportunities to elevate those experiences. I know there was such buzz, was it six years ago with um, the live action Beauty and the Beast and LeFou and and mm -hmm. ultimately it was barely even noticeable about uh, his sexuality and that caused such, uh, such disdain um, all around in terms of, well, you kind of missed the opportunity, but yet people were also who harbored homophobia were also uh, sharing their voices. So uh, there's there's mistakes and there's missed opportunities, but I think gradually Disney as a company is realizing that um, in terms of the products they create and also the environments they, they cultivate in the parks in terms of like even simple things like, you know, merchandise um, during, during Pride Month. And yeah, you know, some of it's performative for sure, but, and just to make money, but it's also an investment in, in its guests who are part of that community. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot that continues to need to be done. I'm super encouraged to see, like, if you go on the shop Disney website during Halloween time, you'll increasingly see a bunch of costumes that are uh, modified, so to speak, to mm -hmm. be situated around wheelchairs. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, these are significant things for people who who don't feel like their perspectives are always heard and, and viewed. So yeah. uh, I know that's a really general snapshot, but I feel like um, it makes me increasingly pleased with the Disney product. I mean, I see it across all the different spaces. Uh, it's not perfect, but it, there's increased attentiveness to it. Yeah. And there's really, there's two things that come from that. And um I think I think the the order of asking I think this would be the correct order of asking is it ultimately leads up to the question of you mentioned inclusion that um, understanding is important but or learning more is important and knowledge is important in education but um, it, inclusion should be as important and so my overall my overriding question is do you feel like understanding is kind of the, the the best path toward inclusion um, and, and, and understanding different perspectives and learning about different perspectives, but um, actually, you know, not just, not just saying people need to be included, but understand people's experiences and possibly even the reasons why behind, here's why they need to be included in this particular way. Do you think that is kind of, um, do you think that is the most effective way to actually include people in the conversation and, and from different groups, whatever they may be? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question as well. So I think as I'm interpreting your question, I can use the example of Epcot. So Epcot was in its initial uh, you know, burgeoning period as a theme park was really that notion of blending education and entertainment. And embedded in that is that idea of that you are learning and you're having fun concurrently and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Certainly there are the attractions that have more of that um, pedagogical 
feel like you're like living with the land or at the time listening mm-hmm. to the land where you're just constantly learning about um, agriculture and plants. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a f- few fun elements if you spot like a Mickey tomato or something, yeah. but yeah. Uh, nonetheless, uh, and then you have on the complete opposite, you'd have at the time, I guess, um, you know, in the early days, like body wars at the wonders of life, which you're not really learning about the human body too much. Like you hear some technical terms, that, but it's in that context of maybe you're uh, learning a few things here and there. What I love about Epcot and, and how this relates to your earlier point about inclusion is the notion of Epcot was developed as a park where you would really want to embrace this notion of um, mutual understanding and empathy. And I think that really presents itself in World Showcase, where you have representatives from different countries sharing about their experiences, um, having conversations where it's interactive, where it's not just staring at a screen, which you could do. Mm-hmm. You could go to O Canada and, and watch a film, but you could talk with uh, Canadians or people from France and the list goes on. I think that's what Disney has always been very effective in, is that providing they provide initial exposure to other experiences. And I feel like the parks and particularly Epcot has always been very effective on that front. And I think inclusivity is threaded in its mission, maybe not super explicitly, but this notion of perspective taking. And I think that having that physical engagement where you're walking around the park, where you're communicating with other people, serves as that really effective channel. Um, However, um, you know, a cynic could say, oh, you know, it's all corporate speak or it's all, you know, through a a Mickey Mouse colored lens that is inauthentic and doesn't have a whole lot of depth. But I think with so many folks, you need need to think about their entrance points. Um, (laughs) Entrance points, not necessarily just walking through the gates in that entrance point, but really in terms of entrance point, in terms of mentality and and prior understandings. And so I think connected to this larger argument or understanding of inclusion and inclusion for folks who are minoritized, who have different experiences than yourself, it can all be very surfacy, right? Just this notion of like walking in someone else's shoes. But a big part of it is you need to have conversations with others mm-hmm. and 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 learn a little bit, even if it's just really surfacy and really brief, but it can serve as that starting point. So yeah. if I had not gone to Epcot as a kid, I probably would not have been nearly as interested in uh, learning about alternative forms of energy. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately now they don't have that exposure because universe of energy doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But the, the point being that we can't underestimate the impact of having that immersive experience and learning about other cultures and experiences um, and, and that's what I love about what Disney represents. It's not always super explicit and right in front of you, but I think Disney is a channel for that. And I think yeah. that the films can be really useful, particularly because we're talking about consumption earlier and the frequency. It's much easier to watch, um, you know, it's much easier to watch uh, Ryan the Last Dragon five times than it is to go to Epcot five times in a concentrated period. Um, and not that that film is super explicitly talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, racial related issues, but it, you're, you're seeing that notion of, yeah. oh, you know, 
it's a it's a it's a society it's an experience it's a culture that perhaps might be different from my own and um, I mean Mulan I think is a perfect illustration of you know uh, folklore and and Chinese culture and and making it very consumable to young children and then maybe they want to visit China for real down the line so that's what I love about Disney it's a it's a vehicle and it's not always the direct vehicle but it it can help provide greater understanding and, and empathy, which I think empathy is a, a skill set I think a lot of people are not quite yeah. um, always thinking about or engaged in. But yeah. Disney, because Disney is so emotion-based and feeling-based, can uh, surface that more for folks. Well, and that, uh, that's, where, uh, that's where our research has gone most recently, is identifying different settings where people react more positively toward one another or more negatively toward one another and using some of those settings to B Disney being one of them, uh, science fiction and comics being others, that using those settings to possibly make those connections with people so that they they have those connections and then through uh, extended, and I don't want to get too much into it, but through extended contact, and talking with that person, maybe they start to understand other things that, you know, other ideas that these people have and, and understand a little bit more about them, possibly leading to more inclusion. I think one of the really interesting things about Disney is, and you mentioned that it can be this kind of introduction or sometimes a catalyst to introducing someone to a specific topic. Um, I've asked people in the past if they believed entertainment companies have the responsibility to educate along with entertain. And there's kind of, you know, people come down on both sides of that um, argument. But one interesting thing about Disney, and it's multifaceted, because a lot of people know the Walt Disney Company is celebrating, will is celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. Um, so they're a very old company. And they are an entertainment company. So their primary, I mean, their their content or their purpose was to put entertainment out into the world. Um, and so you have people who say that, you know, throughout history, they have been a catalyst to introduce people to certain topics. Um, also, partially because it is such an old company, there's such a huge library of examples of this happening, not all examples have been really good examples. You know, you you have content that they've created that they don't, um, you have content they created that they won't show but because of the, the nature of that content and the reaction to it and the, the could be hurtful nature or hurtful nature of that content. And so, you know, it's just so interesting because they are an entertainment company and because part of like the early um, the early show, the Disneyland shows and the world of color shows and Epcot has, is that notion of edutainment that Disney finds itself in this really interesting spot or place where, um, whereas other entertainment companies have not really said they are in the edutainment space. Disney kind of has. And so, you know, there, 
as as a fan and as someone who talks about this um on a fan level but also a professional level where do you think the kind of the balance is or how do you how do you rectify some of the the content that Disney has put out that possibly introduces people to a to a topic but maybe uses you know they did it in a way that was that was stereotypical that was hurtful um and then other times that they've done it really really well for this this way to like introduce somebody to a topic how do you make sense of all of that and yeah. How do you make sense of the question I just rambled on for five minutes about too, I guess. No, no, no. It's I we, we got there, right? Um <laughs> it's uh I'm I'm like that too about when I get really invested um in something. I think it's hard for me to think of explicit negative examples of Disney and education. Um I you know, one thing that I would love to explore more, and this isn't necessarily in my um uh, immediate plans but the history of like disney educational productions there was a mm -hmm. whole period with disney mm -hmm. producing these tapes about you know i mean first it started with um you know in the early days um, you know the story of menstruation short that people forget that disney was responsible for but disney had a very salient role in in mm -hmm. schools as early as you know the 50s um and later that uh translated into some of the cartoon shorts being um, modified in ways to explain concepts and um, and then think about the 1990s with um, not only VHS as we've talked about but um, and actually it started as early as the 80s but also um, I think a really fine example of Disney's role in education was Bill Nye the Science Guy yeah. which was uh, a staple on television for many years it really elevated folks interest in science it was fun there was music we talked about the world of music and spoofs of songs and all that um so i mean i feel so privileged that i grew up in a time when i had such opportunities for interactivity right so i was not only was i playing my uh toy story animated storybook but also there were like this was related to Disney, like who wants to be a millionaire on yeah. CD-ROM? Like, um, because I love trivia, I love to learn. And my love of learning is so intertwined with Disney because of the product that came from it, not just visiting Epcot for the first time as I was age seven um, or at age seven, but alongside that where I was, you know, you know, initially learning to read years earlier with you know disney themed books or um so this notion of disney's role in terms of producing content that can be generative that can help provide information i think disney even though it may not always have uh, explicit uh, lines or divisions that relate to that i think disney is a, a key vehicle in that in terms of particularly reading and and books i mean children's books i mean yeah some children's books are are just meant to entertain but you know, a, a number address issues related to inclusion and social justice and 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 even just uh, the idea of, we we're talking about empathy earlier and, and some of these quote unquote soft skills mm -hmm. that so many of us adults don't always practice. D Disney has a super important role in that. And, um, and I don't think we can overlook that 
you know, yes, there it's it's an entertainment company aimed to make money. Disney does a heck of a lot of good in terms of providing space for folks to discover new avenues and interests and want to pursue different fields. I mean, think of you know the number of Imagineers who became experts in their craft because they visited the parks and wanted to know how was this building constructed or what tools were used to uh, create uh, this mosaic, uh, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Um, the, the company is made up of people who are fantastic in their craft because of that love of learning often connected back to their initial exposure to Disney, whether it be through the parks or the films or yeah. products or, or other divisions. It's, it's really incredible. I'm not sure if I totally hit at your question, but I feel like Disney's overall very effective in terms of of its educational efforts, even if they're not super apparent at surface level. Yeah, yeah. And and the last one on this, how do you think the the company has 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 addressed their shortcomings in the past? You know, I mean, they they have some. Now they have messages in front of some of their their older content um, that talks about like how, you know, some of the content's not appropriate or, or, or it was stereotypical. How do you think, especially an older company who, which newer companies possibly don't, well, they just don't have to, they don't have the long history and the library to address some of the things that would have happened in the past. How do you think, that the company has handled issues like that. Yeah, I mean that's certainly a, a tricky issue. I'm I'm of the mindset of that censorship is not good, right? We need to learn from our mistakes. We need to learn from our history. And as tired as the term is, some things are products of their time, even if not favorable. It's not where we necessarily should be more understanding of people harboring problematic. Um, portrayals of communities or or any of that we we do have to recognize though that um society evolves and, and hopefully certain understandings emerge as there's a greater sense of of inclusion but we even see that disrupted in our 2023 world but i have actually because this is kind of a conversation point i have a question for you did you happen to see the documentary on disney plus recently about the history of mickey mouse um it was called I, mickey the story of a mouse i did i did watch it um i will have to admit i didn't i i watched it one time and it was kind of i was doing various things while i was doing it so i didn't really get to pay close close attention to it yeah the reason why i mentioned is i think it's a really interesting example of of how disney's trying to make sense of its of its history in terms Mm -hmm. of there are some references in it on how Mickey Mouse uh, kind of demonstrated problematic characteristics. And I do remember, yeah, I do remember that part of it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the reviews that I was reading of the documentary after were, it was this, you know, mix of commending Disney for acknowledging its shortcomings, but also saying, well, even this is painted with the, a certain, no pun intended, painted with a certain brush where it's acknowledging but not necessarily addressing the extent of harm. And and again, it, it comes down to who is who is telling the story, right? Are, are you going to be focusing on all of the negative um, 
things associated with your background or experiences. And, and Disney has a fine line to walk there. And ultimately, I think acknowledgements are, are the right star. And I also don't think we need to constantly focus on negative things from our past so much as focusing on how do we shape a better future, right? We need to acknowledge mm-hmm. and we need to create space for that, right? Like I, um, you know, the constant debate in the Disney world would be when when and how would Song of the South be released? And ultimately, um, certainly under Iger's leadership and probably his comrades, that's not going to be in the cards because very much opposed to it. And it, you know, it 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 represents a lot of negativity for for just reasons. And and in the same breath, I think we need to focus on that, you know, all of these different elements of Disney's past still influence its present and and future direction. So, um, you know, this this reveals itself in a number of ways. And this is where history books and historians are so important to uncover um, knowledge, not only about the products of the past that we sometimes forget about, right, uh, in terms of shorts that haven't been showcased for years, but also the people behind them, right? We get to a certain point where everybody and everything can get canceled for one reason or another through association. And um, certainly we need to elevate our voices when we see current harm um, being produced. Um, and I think there is an opportunity to learn from from people's mistakes or 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 actions that were reflective of their opinions, which were short-sighted. Um, mm-hmm. And I think people are going to say the same about in terms of portrayals of minoritized characters in, in more modern films and how they could have done better. And I know so many in the Disney community, we've been super upset with the failures of, of Lightyear and Strange World because they're solid films mm-hmm. and they also had central people of color and LGBTQ plus uh, uh, people uh, people of color who identify as LGBTQ plus. Uh, try saying that three times fast. And, and <laughs> I think that those were super, super important representations. Yeah. But, and they were pretty central characters, not no less, but because few people saw those films and because the films tanked, that could inhibit certain progress and people would make false attributions that that's why the films underperform. No, that has nothing to do with it. It could have dissuaded some folks, but um, all that to say, um, all of these things that are happening now are going to inform future demonstrations of, of inclusion and how we have conversations. So I think there's a lot to learn from in, in our past and not to disre- disregard it um, or or conceal it, but rather to have continued conversation. Yeah. And, and I think Disney's done continually um, reconciling that and and they're not going to do a perfect job because they still have an image to present. But um, it, that that's the just the as you said, it's a it's a 100 year old company. So some of some of its roots are are indeed reflective of that era. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it is it is in line with what you're talking about, understanding leading to inclusion. Um, And also, you know, um, I remember speaking to someone in this class about, you know. One and, and we talk about this a lot. One sign of progress is that, you know, you continually are growing as a society and and there are elements of elements that influence all of that and so this idea of progress being like 
people being more inclusive and understanding more about each other. Um, so the the last thing on your your research, your professional era area, um, and it deals with like this this understanding and inclusion is how do you think um, Disney content can be used in a classroom setting or an educational setting to better help people that are on the spectrum? That's a, that's a good question. It's something I haven't fully figured out yet in my own work, just because of the field I'm in. Um, I find ways of, of bringing Disney references into my education courses, even if not always uh, uh, directly relevant. Um, but for for a smile or 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 to illustrate a point, I think Disney can be uh, super effective in in educational settings um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I, you know, there are disciplinary nuances, right? Like if you're in a humanities class and studying film, of course Disney is going to mm-hmm. factor in. But and your question is about how can Disney be leveraged in classroom for autistic folks and. I'm not sure if I fully figured out that yet. I think um, that's something that maybe I'd want to explore further. But I think there's this broader point that's even beyond Disney um, that just focuses on education and learning and autism, but also all learning, which is the notion of people consume material and demonstrate knowledge best when they feel like they are interested and when they can apply it. And I think... All of us educators can recognize that point that you you, you get someone who has a, a mechanism to showcase their knowledge, learn something new, expand their mind, share that in in ways that are beyond the traditional test taking, and that can uh, that can make waves in, in terms of them wanting to proceed in a field, wanting to collaborate with others, wanting to do a variety of things. And so, what I often say in my uh, autism uh, education work is um, particularly in classroom settings is uh, you, you try to leverage strengths. You try to focus on what people are not only passionate about, but what skills they bring to the table. Could it be that they're very detailed oriented? Could it be that they are uh, super adept in organization, whatever it may be, and finding ways to really bolster that um, in terms of uh, not only how they work on assignments, but how they can present their knowledge. Mm-hmm. But what's really important to me in my work as an educator and what I talk about with all of my colleagues is that um, the, the techniques as an educator that you use to um, support autistic folks can actually benefit everyone, right? The notion of having an agenda at the beginning of the day so it gives folks an understanding of what's the game plan. It mm-hmm. doesn't cause uh, confusion or surprises, um, the the notion of giving uh, uh, variety and choice in how to present your knowledge via an assignment or um, a multitude of different means. This ultimate concept is like, and it's folded into this idea of universal design for learning. It's different ways of showing your engagement um, and expressing knowledge and and all of that f- fun stuff. So what how you might need to adapt or, or consider things for folks who have certain disabilities that actually um, those thoughts and understandings and applications can have more universal, more transferable effects. 
Um, so what does that mean from a Disney standpoint? I'm not sure yet, but <laughs> I think it, it really depends on the field of study, right? I think there are a lot of ways in which you can incorporate uh, Disney in terms of educational settings, and particularly if you have autistic students, for them to illustrate that. My, um, you know, people people in my world recognize that, uh, and, and academia, that is, if I were to call that my world, but know that it is so vital to foster learning and foster that excitement and whatever you can do for that um, can make a, a world of difference. It takes you down unexpected avenues. Um, yeah. And for me, it was having space to follow my passions and leverage my strengths that have led me to do things uh, both professionally and then with the podcast personally as well that are really fulfilling and that showcased hopefully my my strengths in, in tandem. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of things, I think we'll talk, we'll talk more offline. Um, but I th it feels like, it feels like you in a few years may, may have uh, possibly a class <laughs> idea for something like this. Uh, and also, you know, it's um, people in academia understand the, the need for, you know, for the, the research line, but also, you know, it sounds like you, you've already, started thinking about incorporating or how some of this is incorporated into that. Um, and so uh, I could talk about this uh, for probably two more hours, but I promised you we would, we would be done in about 40 minutes now. So I do want to talk about notably Disney, um, the podcast that you have. Um, and most recently it was um, and 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 I, I realized when when we talked, you didn't know this, but I believe it was number 77 or 78 on the top 100 um, Disney podcast, which I, I think some of their metrics were uh, release times and, and like maybe regularity of releases, but also engagement and how many people are downloading and listening and things like that. So congratulations on that. Um, and can you tell us what notably Disney is, um, how you got started on it, um, kind of what the premise of the podcast is? Yeah, thanks. So basically, I had been writing um, for entertainment websites, that Disney column for seven years, and I really enjoyed it um, across those two websites. And uh, what led me to um, to take a break from writing online um, was not that I suddenly did, was not interested in Disney anymore. It was wanting to try, try to find a different avenue for engaging um, with my passion. And because uh, as an academic, as someone who was in journalism for a while, I was just writing a ton and I still am. And so it's like, okay, what's another outlet? And I have been a consumer of podcasts since the nascency of podcasts in 05. Like I was, you know, Inside the Magic in its first few months, I was listening to and um, WDW Radio and other podcasts that are no longer around. Like I was consuming that stuff constantly um, because it was a, another way for me to realize, as we we're talking earlier, people love Disney and people have stuff to share. People have experiences to relay. You know, whether it be working in the parks or interviewing Imagineers or or just big, uh, big group of folks at a round table um, talking about the news. 
there's a lot of different avenues. And so I was kind of at this juncture, well, you know, I'm not writing online anymore, but I want to find another avenue to tap into. And I had, um, I'd guested on, on a podcast, a few podcasts I, um, earlier in my journey, um, as a, as a writer. And, and I'm like, you know, this is kind of a cool mechanism. I wonder if I could do this sometime. And, and I realized that, you know, the Disney, uh, podcast marketplace is pretty saturated. Um, this was four years ago now and still is, but like, you'll find like on the most random niche aspects of Disney, or it'll be where it's pretty much redundant, where you can find 20 podcasts that ultimately are not too dissimilar from one another. So it's like, okay, what, what would be my niche? And so I realized, well, um, at the time there was only one book themed podcast um, on Disney. So Book of the Mouse Club and Courtney and Emily host a great podcast there. They have English backgrounds. They um, they handle book reviews, they interview authors, and I become friends with them and they're wonderful. And, and I realized, well, I love books. I wouldn't want to be duplicative um, with what they do. Um, and then I realized, well, nobody's really doing a music, Disney music theme podcast. And then I was thinking about, well, what about the overlap between the two? Because, you know, books and music, they, they're different types of media, but there's this still foundation in my sense of storytelling that happens um through lyrics and through words on a page um and so so then okay then the process of like what do i call this podcast what's going to be something that is a mouthful but kind of encapsulates uh books and music so notably i felt like it was a a good word that has uh, some co multiple connotations. So I know you weren't asking for like, how did I come up with the name for the podcast? But it was a very exciting thing. And and then um, one of, one of was that? Yep, I think you needed Cody. I said that, uh, no, that's brilliant. I, I'm glad you said that. You, you And <laughs> it made me laugh. You said, you want to find something that that's nice and short. Uh, you know, uh, being a fan of Disney isn't necessarily the, the shortest title um either so but captures that made, the point it captures the point which it, is it's literally matters. it's literally the name of the class so that's kind of goes along with that but but keep going yeah no dual purpose um and then so basically okay so i have the general concept books music mesh it um but what am i actually going to do with that and i'm thinking well i i was wondering at one point do i want to co-host what would that involve and i ultimately decided not to do that but I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to be talking the whole time. I don't want to be hearing myself the whole time. So I'm like, maybe make it an interview show because I have a foundation in that, not only in terms of my journalistic roots, but as a as an educational researcher, I'm interviewing people very much, uh, very frequently. Um, and I like to learn. I like to meet new people. And um, you know, maybe I would do a few episodes on my own, but you know, mostly let's talk with some other people. So, um, so yeah, I started in early 2019. Um, the notion of two episodes a month. Um, there had been some months early on in the podcast where I handled it weekly, but um, for the past few years, people can expect twice a month, um, first and third Tuesday of each month is the cons consistency that I like. Um, and where you can always expect something pretty uh, distinct and uh, informative. Like I don't, I'm of the mindset of that, I want to add to knowledge. I don't want to duplicate knowledge. So mm -hmm. it's so I've really enjoyed when I've had uh, in, 
interviews where the folks aren't necessarily uh, like the most uh, visible folks in different Disney music and book spaces, but this is maybe a mechanism to learn more about their backgrounds, or if they are uh, famous or more famous, well, maybe asking them questions that uh, would not necessarily be on top of mind. So like, and I knew from onset I wanted to, you know, this being books and music, I want to interview authors, composers, songwriters, fellow Disney podcasters, um, episodes alternate, you, you know, there might be a couple of episodes in a row that have more of a music focus, but then a book, sometimes there's a mix, sometimes it's occasionally all of episodes are a bit broader and not necessarily directly connected to music and books, but most often people recognize this, but a perfect example of, of an episode where I have someone pretty famous on, but I'm not talking about what you'd expect. So I had, I interviewed David Newman, the composer. So that's Randy Newman's cousin, who's mm -hmm. a, a downright good composer in his own right. I mean, he's a, a really solid guy. And, um, and I was talking with him specifically about, um, his work in adapting um, the West Side Story uh, score, um, which was released through 20th Century Studios. Anyways, but I mean, yes, I want to talk about that and ask a few questions, but I'm thinking to myself, well, his Disney background, he he did the score for 102 Dalmatians. Why not ask about that? Yeah. And he was just, I think, tickled because nobody's really asked him about his music for that. So that that's an opportunity where, again, you have someone who's more notable, but you're you're engaging the conversation with them about stuff that they that you really can't find on the web or in other spaces. Mm -hmm. So let's hear more of those stories surface. So that's kind of core to my approach, whether it's someone who's more notable or not. Let, let's learn about their backgrounds. Let's hear about their unique contributions to the company. And if they're a fellow podcaster or fan, well, let's have a really stimulating conversation on a topic. And sometimes it's total fun and fandom and, and sharing about personal opinions but sometimes it's uh, even more substantive than that yeah and and i mean it's it's over it's over 100 episodes now of uh, so people can and people can listen wherever they get wherever they listen to their podcast um whatever platform they're on and yeah i i like the i like the show because as you said some of the episodes are are more that playful let's talk about like what we like and and give our opinions on things but then if there are specific um you know some of the the, the interview episodes that if there are ones that kind of spark a person's interest um then they are very very insightful and not just where you think it's going to go um so i here's my attempt to 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 showcase that in this interview. And I don't know if I'll do a good job. Um, but Monday we recorded for um, this. So this was a few days ago for people that will listen to this or watch this in the future. We, you were actually part of our Disney musicals panel. Um, and we had great conversation about like what makes a musical uh, what, what is just like kind of background music um, when we got into like, what are some of your favorite musicals? What are the ones that you wish were added to Disney Plus? And so if people want to um, listen to that, um, they'll they'll have the opportunity to listen or watch that one separately. But one thing that I didn't get to ask you um, before is about movie scores. 
Um, a few months ago, I had uh, Ken Rosenthal on um, to, or I'm sorry, Ken, Ken Skidmore on to talk about um, his love of voiceover work, his work in radio. But then we got into this big conversation about movie scores as well. And um, so that's, I wanted to ask you, since you've talked to people about this, um, what are some of the more meaningful movie scores that you have come across? It could be Disney, could be non-Disney. Um, and what kind of how or why did you identify with those? Wow. Um, that's a great question too. So I think one of the earliest film scores that um, stands out to me and has actually direct connections to the podcast was Bruce Broughton's work for Homeward Bound, um, the animal adventure films from the 90s. There was the original, which turn, turns 30 this year, makes me feel old because I was a baby when that debuted and, um, and its sequel three years later. That score is, I think, and and he's attested to it in other interviews. Um, people t talk about online; those scores are are very meaningful for folks because it's attached to a film that's also meaningful, which is this notion of animals trying to find their way home, and the love that so many people have for their pets, and and the significance of of those movies, and kind of illustrating how we assume our pets feel about us as humans and the score is um it has some country and western elements there's some beautiful um use of the fiddle and um, unique instrumentation but it also has a a classic um symphonic score at, at times it's it's a beautiful piece of work and um it's a score that i grew up on and when i you know in developing the roots of this podcast i assembled a list of all these great composers who have developed um, scores for Disney, would there be any chance in interviewing them? And I had seen that Bruce Brown, that he had been interviewed for another Disney podcast or, or perhaps two. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe there's the accessibility. And I reached out and I was able to interview him. And he was at his piano at one point and played a little bit of the famous tune. And I was um, I was just absolutely uh, giddy, uh, even yeah. if I concealed that. But the notion of talking with, in a sense, musical idols, people whose scores have such value and attachment to my childhood, um, has been one of the greatest gifts of a podcast uh, like this, where I have that direct opportunity uh, to engage with them. There's nothing more special, and I tell this to all of my colleagues, Disney related or academic, whatever the case may be, friends, the most valuable thing that so many of us have is our time. So mm -hmm. when you get someone's time, whether it's 15 minutes, an hour, two hours, like we're having today, that's a gift and it's something to really leverage and, and utilize and, and feel grateful for. Um, so that's how I how I treat my interviews. And, and your earlier question is about meaningful score as well that was a case where mm -hmm. scores that meant so much to me as a child, ones that I would play all the time as someone who um, plays the piano um, for fun, not, uh, not uh, expertly, but, but decently. Um, if I have an opportunity to get sheet music for a score, I love um, that. That means a lot. Homeward Bound, unfortunately, is not big enough to have on a release, but all that to say, to have that opportunity to talk with someone whose score I loved that's really significant. There have been other examples 
of that for the podcast too. Um, I mean, I, I grew up um, loving uh, Gavin Greenaway's music for Illuminations at Epcot, talked with him about that. Um, there have been so many examples in, in the past four years. Um, Joseph Trapanese, who um, handled with Daft Punk, but primarily him, the, the work for Tron Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the musicians behind the 101 Dalmatians uh, 1996 release, the composer um, has, has since passed, but um, the, the, the team who brought that to life, Harry Gregson Williams, who um, has produced a lot for the studio and most recently the, the live action Mulan. It's, it's been incredible. Um, So that's probably a longer answer, but all that to say, there've been a lot of meaningful Disney scores, ones that I've listened to, ones that I've played on the piano and, and for some of them to talk with the folks who created them. Uh, What a gift. Well, and it, it actually, it does bring up another podcast related question. Um, And this will be the last one. And then we have, we have a few other things that what has been your, not necessarily favorite, but most meaningful or uh, impactful kind of outcomes from hosting a podcast. What have you like, what have you gotten out of it that, that you will take with you for a long time? Uh, I, I love all these questions. <laughs> They're really good. Um, that says it's, I'm a qualitative researcher for all the things. <laughs> so I like good questions. It, it presents itself in like my, my uh my social life too like when someone when i ask a, what i think is a good question or someone else says i'm like yeah that's that's really that's well said <laughs> um you. yeah so i don't know if i've been asked that but i'll tell you three things that instantly come to mind one is the notion of as a constant lifelong learner and someone who loves to discover stuff the podcast is an opportunity to unveil knowledge that I think sometimes isn't always surfacing. So, right, like the example I use with David Newman discussing 102 Dalmatians, like you really can't find anything about that. Like it's very, very minimal. And it's not, I mean, it's not like uh, an Oscar winning score. And and I mean, it's a great score, but the, the notion of having the space for him to talk about it for a few minutes and where people have perspective from the composer themselves, that's that's awesome. Um, the same notion goes to when I talk with authors who have written great books. I talked with um, Christopher Merritt, one of the co-authors of the Mark Davis in his own words book, which is a monumental, fantastic release from th- uh, three years ago now um, on the famous Disney animator and Imagineer. Um, he wrote it with Pete Doctor of Pixar. So to talk with an Imagineer and, and someone, and mind you, Chris was you know, doing the rounds of going on different podcasts mm-hmm. and talking with media, but the notion of being able to ask him questions that extended beyond the book that allowed him to perhaps offer more perspective than what's captured in a published final product. Mm-hmm. That same notion applies to other guests as well. That's a that's a gift. That is something that I love. I love surfacing things that people otherwise may not know about. And I think that's connects all back to connects to not only my interest in the subject matter of whoever I'm talking with or what I'm interviewing them about, but also, um, you know, just that inquisitive spirit. I think that's one. I think the other very important um, takeaway from the podcast is that it's built community. Um, I've made friends through the podcast. Um, 
in terms of uh, fellow podcasters and and some of the guests where I've been able to have conversations with them um, beyond that context. And that's really fulfilling um, because D Disney is a, a shared interest, but mm -hmm. there's also other things that I can bond over. Um, and so for that to have been a, a spark and a continued avenue um, and, you know, reaching out, right? Like, you know, I, I was familiar with your podcast and, and reached out to you and you were on my podcast several months ago. And it's, it's nice to be able to meet people who, where there's a similar understanding, whether it's about an industry or shared interest, that's really fulfilling. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess the third thing I would say that's a huge takeaway um, for me is just the the absolute delight that I have when I talk with someone who um, not only just uncovering knowledge, which is important, but the notion of being able to have a conversation in real time with someone whose work I have admired and mm -hmm. that I have a connection to, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll talk with people who I, I may not instantly know a lot about them, but I will gradually um, get that perspective through researching them and then um, engaging with them. That's really cool. I mean, yeah, I, I, I there have been so many times where I've just been floored that like, oh my gosh, like I was able to, um, you know, talk with the composer of the Mickey Mouse shorts and 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 lyricist vocalist um, Christopher and Elise Willis who are they're a wonderful couple they they're responsible for the music for Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway they're fantastic um, it's it's absolutely delightful um, yeah. and and I feel really really fortunate that I mean I have I feel like I have like the small little podcast and you know I don't always know like who's engaging or who's listening but to have that space I'm doing it for me as much as I am for other people to the yeah. notion of being able to again respect people's time and space and and give them an outlet to um to share knowledge and yeah. and that's that's wonderful yeah I I'm a I'm a big believer in everybody if you want to tell your story everybody should have an outlet to tell their story um whether that is is the quality of that doesn't really matter as much to me as I like the idea that everyone should be able to do this um in a in a way that that is is comfortable to them um and so I I, I really appreciate that response um I appreciate everything that we've talked about today I think um to close up before we get to the rapid questions um one thing that we do in this class is, um, the students, they, they, a few years ago, I wrote a paper about how students or how the, the Marvel cinematic universe can be used and how the characters in that universe can be used, um, to help people acclimate either to college or to work or wherever. Um, and so each semester, <clears throat> excuse me, the students, um, either <clears throat> read that paper or, um, watch or listen to the summary um, kind of podcast or episode I did about that. And then they, for one of their case studies in the class, talk about what character or characters they identify with or wit want to emulate and things like that and, and why they want to um, emulate that or, or why they identify with that character. Is there 
a Marvel character or an MCU character or characters that you think you most closely identify with that that kind of helps you um, work your way and make your sense of of the world? Gosh, I mean, I would want to say any of them that are doctors. <laughs> now that I have that title, I feel like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm the Hulk because I no, no. Um, that's a good question. So I think the one that comes to mind instantly is uh, Spider-Man. Okay. Um, and I think one, because my partner said that that I, I give off that vibe, um, okay. but also because I think I exhibit certain qualities. So Spider-Man is this, and I think Spider-Man is almost like an every man, every person type. He's, mm -hmm. um, he's your uh, boy next door. He's nerdy. He's very much focused on caring for his community, um, but also using his intellectual skills to, um, for, for good reasons and, um, I certainly don't have the scientific skills, so I, I'm not adept in that department. But yeah, I think I'm I'm very much a Spider-Man um, in terms of the brains, in terms of probably the the physique, and and also in terms of um, some of those more abstract qualities as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I, and I think you know that's Spider-Man. I'm also wearing all red at the moment. So. <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man in particular is you know that was one of the early characters um not as early as fantastic four but spider-man was one of those early characters that people really identified with because it was this is a this is a teenager who is going through um the same problems that every teenager has gone through and but on top of that they have these superpowers that um you know and lo and behold contrary to what people may think when they're they're a kid uh, having superpowers isn't always the the best thing you know it gets it gets in the way of a lot of other issues so i think that's that's a that's a great response i think a lot of people um that i've talked to they they share that as well um so there are a few rapid questions that i have i actually have seven of them and and the premise of these is you can explain this if you want you don't have to explain anything if you want um it's just kind of either that first thing that comes to mind or you know uh something that you you really identify with so the first one is um i labeled it favorite resort and by that i mean like Walt disney world versus disneyland versus any of the international parks you may have gone to so what is your favorite resort from disney uh, I've only been to the domestic ones. Um, okay. Paris will be on the docket, uh, hopefully in in several months. Um, I'm gonna say Walt Disney World. Okay. Uh, in terms of just scale and variety. Okay. And now within that, and it could this could be Disneyland or Walt Disney World. But do you have a what favorite park do you have? I think it's changed um, in some respects. I think Epcot has always been my favorite. Um, I think I have some. Uh, frustrations with its evolution on certain mm -hmm. fronts and priorities. Um, I probably still would consider it my favorite park because of what it's meant in terms of just that notion of fostering knowledge and all that. But uh, I guess maybe paired with Disneyland uh, okay. Park in, in California. All right. Do you have a favorite attraction, uh, a favorite ride at any of the parks? 
that's like picking your favorite child. That's, <laughs> that's always the worst question to ask a fan, although some have the direct answers. Uh, I, I think some of the standards, uh, the staples like Pirates and Haunted Mansion stand out because of being, you know, in, imagineering marvels and, and still standing the test of time to be incredible attractions and ones that evoke so much in terms of that feeling, in terms of the senses and the music and all that. Um, huge fan of Spaceship Earth, okay. um, even though it's certainly uh, a little bit outdated on on certain fronts. Um, I think it's a quintessential dark ride one where you do learn a little bit. I mean, mm -hmm. now it's Judy. I mean, it's been Judy Dench for a while, but I learned I learned initially through Jeremy Irons and people before me through Cronkite. So um, I, I love Spaceship Earth in terms of what it represents in terms of uh, telling the history of communication, but yeah. in an inventive manner. Um, love Space Mountain. Uh, for the thrills and the immersiveness and uh, space. And I feel like I'm forgetting some others, but um, I also love something as simple as the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, the yeah. people move around in Florida. Um, it's It doesn't offer a whole lot, but it's relaxing and it's one I could ride endlessly. Yeah. Uh, the TTA is actually one that I go on every time and it is very, very relaxing. I love it. Um, and same thing with Spaceship Earth. That you get on it and it's just this feel of being on it that um just you're you're going to enjoy you're going you know you're going to enjoy your time when you're on there um any of the the disneyland or walt disney world anywhere that you stayed do you have a favorite hotel on property honest answer is i have i haven't uh stayed in many of the resorts um just often Walt Disney World would consistently go to Pop Century okay. in California in the early days. It was Paradise Pier Hotel, but for the most part, it's offsite. Um, I think in terms of places I visited and and um, experienced, gosh, um, there are a lot of great resorts. I, I'm not sure if I can answer that question just because I haven't had the experience to even okay. visit a bunch of them. And I think that's been increasingly the goal. So on my last WDW visit, um, through the Skyliner and through other transportation, stopped at a bunch of the resorts. And so that was nice to have that initial exposure. Um, I, I can't tell you that. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm ignorant. <laughs> do you, do you have a favorite, um, we'll combine this. Do you have a favorite restaurant and or snack mm. when you're in the, like when you're walking around, what's your go-to meal or when you, decide to go to Disney Springs or you decide to actually do something quick service, what's your choice? Oh, that's a good question. Kind of the same answer. I haven't experienced enough of the dining and restaurants <laughs> and people. And uh, I joke to my friends when talking about meals, like I'm a vegetarian with a lot of vegan tendencies. So like some of the things that other people might like, I, I might not go for. So like the turkey leg is not on my list. Yeah, um, yeah. Gosh, I love um, if, if they're warm, I, I love uh, the Mickey pretzels and some mustard, okay. um, but uh, you know you can't go wrong with um, you know getting some ice cream. Um, yeah, I I'm not sure if there's like one go to food, but um, I, I I like when the portion sizes are are considerable because I think that's the one thing that consistently irritates me now. Like, am I getting my money's worth yeah. for for the snack or meal? So hard to say. I I love 
with so many places the ambiance and i think animal kingdom is really yeah. nice with that in terms of some of the settings of the uh, dino locations okay um and these last two really come from um you you mentioned earlier you used to um, draw maps and plan different areas of the parks so the first question is um what and, and i've asked a few other people this but what is a dream attraction for you to be built? It could be something that Disney already owns. It could be something that like Disney doesn't own, but you you wish they would either acquire it or negotiate the theme park rights for it. Similar to what they did when they built, you know, the Indiana Jones and they put the stunt show spectacular in and then with Star Tours before that. Do you have a dream attraction that you would like to see built? I will preface it by saying that I would, uh, you know, I said I would draw maps. I actually like I would draw cue lines and like okay. fake trees on paper. Like I went all out and like would figure out like the ride tracks and what would the scenes be. And so far as as a seven, I think I was seven. I actually sent a letter to Michael Eisner with a proposal, like a one paragraph pr proposal for a Toy Story dark ride. Okay, so. And it was acknowledged with uh, a couple of postcards and a, a generic nice. response. But um, I mean, that's how far it went. Um, I will at this. Point, well, so what? Like, what was what yeah. was the dark? What was on the dark ride? Like, what was it made I, up of? I I mean, I don't think my description was it Midway was, Mania. No, no, I don't <laughs> okay. think it was terribly. No, no, no. I mean, that'd be amazing, right? And I should get royalties or something. No, <laughs> I think. I don't remember the description. I think my description would have been something along the lines of that you would board vehicles that resemble the characters. So like okay. like the RC car or Han or something like that. And then you would just go through the like a traditional dark ride. Yeah. As an adult, I would probably say, well, you know, now some of the dreams that I think so many of us have have been realized with the uh, Beating the Beast uh, attraction in uh, Tokyo, even though we don't have that here and Little Mermaid. I probably would go for, and this is kind of a maybe a go with me here idea, but, and this was a, an idea that I conceptualized years ago, National Treasure Hunt. So almost like an Indiana Jones style attraction behind, um, in Walt Disney World, in my mind, it would be behind the American Adventure if they had the space, and I don't think they do. Um, and it would be, where you would board a vehicle like a Jeep and, and you would go through, um, I don't know, some different uh, famous uh, structures in American history and something would go wrong and a way to leverage that live action property and you'd have a Nicolas Cage animatronic. And I don't know, I think that would be really fun yeah. um, and considerably costly in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, you, um, are you watching the the Disney Plus show Nash or national treasure edge of history are you watching any of that uh my answer is i watched the first two episodes and i don't think the writing uh or the acting is particularly strong so okay. i've i've uh, i probably need to get back to it um <laughs> i love the score i love Tra trevor rabin's work uh, it, for um yeah I, i'll say it, it to me i've enjoyed it i think it it gets hopefully gets better if you get back into watching it i will say um, in the series and I won't I won't ruin it for you but they've been they visit two places 
that I have visited actually frequently in my life. And neither one of those places are the actual place. Um, I looked up the filming locations um, because I watching, I'm like, that's, that is not that location. Um, and looking up the filming locations, um, which is understandable. You're not going to, especially on a, a straight to streaming budget, you're not going to be going to many places. The And the last idea, and this goes along with, you said you, you planned out cues, you planned out placement of, of, uh, of foliage. What would be if you if you were asked to pitch an idea for the fifth gate at Walt Disney World, what would be your idea? Oh wow. Oh, so many of us have wondered that, right? That's um and I thought about this, um, but I'm not sure. I think it's it's so hard because I feel like there's there's opportunities for duplication, right? Like we've seen like several, you know, we've seen the Studios Park in Paris, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of like in Florida, but smaller. And um, I don't know if I have a good answer. I think there's an opportunity to. I I know for a while there's the idea of Tokyo Disney Sky which mm -hmm. would have complemented sea and land. Um, I think that becomes pointless in Florida now because originally that was going to have Galaxy's Edge and Pandora, and that's already in Walt Disney World. Um, I don't, I, I'll put it this way. I don't think a park should be dedicated to one brand or property. Okay. Um, okay. I think, I think honoring a common theme and that's why my understanding of this tokyo disney sea is so effective is because there's a way to capitalize on both properties but also places and and areas and i think um that's really served that park quite well so i would say it, it has to have a a common theme that's not contingent on a, a brand that may lose its popularity um over time so i don't know what that looks like okay. um but um I also am very confident that we're not going to see anything like that in the next decade or even 15 years. Um, there really needs to be more attention on making the current parks more robust. Yeah. So, okay. That's a great question. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining. Um, Brett, what if somebody has, if somebody wants to listen to the show, if they want to interact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like I've told my whole life story and exhausted everything here. But if you want to uh, engage with me, uh, you can listen to Notably Disney and subscribe for that uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, just type in Notably Disney. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter. That is B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. So that stems from my journalism days. So I didn't change the handle there. Um, I'm still reporting. It's just different type of uh, content. And uh, you're welcome to email me at b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n at u-a-r-k dot e-d-u. Okay. All right. Well, Brett, thank you so much for this. This was, this was amazing. Um, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me on, Cody. Bye.
Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Habert. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and for listening, and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class, special content related to the class, or visits and interviews we had with guest speakers, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class and see where we're going in the future, you can do so by following me on Twitter at chavardphd. That's C-H-A-V-A-R-D-P-H-D. And you can also follow along by joining the public group on Facebook, Being a Fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guest speakers we've had in class, their contact information is available in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a lot of fun. It's always great having you with us. And please, if you like what you hear, share with other people so that others can engage with each other, possibly learn more and explore more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. So with that, I'll say thanks for joining us again, and please have a great day.